Welcome everybody to Bent Tree Church. We're glad that you guys are here. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you would, go ahead and get your Bibles out. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 15 as we're approaching the end of this uh, volume, at least, of uh, Revelation. Today we begin with verse 1 of chapter 15. And, and if you would, go there with me. One of the most beautiful pictures of worship in the entire Bible we're going to look at today. We're going to start and end with uh, one, and yet it's one of the most scary times as well. Uh, it takes place just before the final judgments and wrath of God are poured out, uh, and but just after, just after the great harvest that we studied last week in Revelation chapter 14, the, uh, the harvest of wheat. Well, let's jump in, but first, would you bow your head and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we just seek you, God, uh, as an act of worship. We ask that you help us just kind of clear our minds of all the temporary junk uh, that is in our lives, our, our businesses, uh, our schools, our worries, just the general busy, busyness of our life. Um, God, we offer you our time we offer you our brains, our thinking, uh, our study of your words. Holy Spirit, uh, you can just have full access to us right now. Reveal the deep things to us as we worship you in the study of your words. Uh, thank you for your word in, uh, contained in Scripture. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, the conquering King, that we all prayed and said, Amen. Amen. Well, notice that the Apostle John is about to see something new here. Uh, the scene changes as he is writing this revelation down that Jesus himself is revealing. So notice this changes here. Well, read along with me. Verse 1 of 15. Then I saw another great and awe-inspiring sign in heaven. Here's what I want you to see here, and you might want to jot this down in your Bible, is another great uh, and awe-inspiring sign. Just there, you're, you're seeing something here when it says another great sign and awe-inspiring sign. It means this is not the first sign. Uh, and then the second thing is this awe-inspiring sign. We're going to look at this in a little bit more detail uh, later on, but what I want you to see here is this is the kind of awe that we're talking about where it's hard to stand. Yeah, you, you drop to your knees or even face down and, and it's hard to breathe. It's, it's not like, oh man, like, uh, like oh, this is wonderful. It's, it's a little bit scary. Uh, we're going to come back to this, but I want to remind you of something. This marks the third sign uh, of the final sign of the book of Revelation. Look at this. Write this down. Revelation 15 marks the third and final sign of our redemption. I hope this makes sense. What I'm saying is that the time is growing short in this part of Revelation for Christ's physical return to the earth. Everything is done on this. We've already started to look at the, that imagery last week of the last battle. But what I'm saying is this is the third of those signs. Let's take a look at them. Uh, what it's talking about is the age of evil that we're living in uh, right now and then comes to its full fruition in this, uh, this time of uh, tribulation. It's coming to the end. But go back with me and let's take a look at the first two signs in this. Revelation 12, verse 1 and 2. This will be a review a little bit, but I want you to see how they fit together. Uh, 
A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. So this is the first sign. Look at this imagery. She's clothed with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labor and agony as she was about to give birth. Pretty visual sign here. The first sign was that God was bringing forth the birth of Jesus through the nation of Israel. That's who the woman represents is this nation of Israel, the Hebrew people. And, and then Jesus is born of this nation. And specifically, you remember the Virgin Mary, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. But look at the second sign. It's also in chapter 12. Here it is. Verse 3, then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Everybody remember this? We've been studying this a ton, right? Who is this? And on its heads were seven crowns. Its tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and hurled them to earth. Do you remember this? The second sign that appears, this great sign, is the stars are the angels fallen from heaven. There the great dragon is who? Our, our spiritual enemy, the devil, or who we call Satan. And this is what you need to see. Remember, what do the fallen angels and what does this evil Satan want? What is their desire? They know they've been defeated. What is it? It's to kill steal and to destroy everything that God loves. Who does he love? He loves you. He loves me. He knows he can't defeat Jesus. He can't defeat God and the Holy Spirit. So what does he do? Is if he can take us out and not receive Christ, it's one. But then for Christians, if he can turn us away from becoming all that God wants us to, wants us to become, in other words, maturing, that's what he wants to do. So watch what happens here in verse 4, still in chapter 12. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, it might devour her child. Now, I want you to see who is the child. This is Jesus. Jesus being born of the nation of Israel, specifically of Mary, is the individual. But then look at verse 5. She gave birth to a son, a male who is going to rule all nations with an iron rod. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now check this out, check this out. Jesus' plan for redemption worked. He came, he was born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, was crucified for the sins of all mankind, laid in a tomb, and then raised on the third day. And then after spending 40 days seeing his followers, what happened? He is raised up, you remember, on the clouds back into heaven. You remember this? His plan for redemption work. That's what this imagery is talking about. Here's a question I have received a couple of times from the people in church, uh, and it's a good question. If all of this stuff is written down in Scripture, then uh, the devil can obviously read. Satan can understand stuff. Why doesn't just Satan do something else? Why does he fall for this, uh, what God has already planned? Does that make sense? It's a good question. The answer is Satan is trying to foil all of this. He's trying to throw this off. But remember, sometimes we ascribe to Satan things that are not really his ability. 
Satan, uh, although much more powerful than us, is still a created being. He still is stuck in time just like we are. In other words, he can't go forward and back in time. He can only be in one place at one time, and he has limited power. God, on the other hand, uh, is outside of time, outside of space, and is all-powerful and is present everywhere all the time. This is huge. Although Satan was created, he was created good and chose evil, Satan only knows what we know. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit of God that we have. That's great news. God reveals the deep truth about himself through the Holy Spirit. That's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. Satan will do what he can, uh, but in the end will be defeated. Now, for instance, uh, let me give you an example. Um, Satan knew, it was prophesied, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and born to a virgin. So Satan was always ready trying to prevent that birth from happening. And you remember what happened? The wise man came, uh, they saw the star in the east, and they came and they told the king Herod, they said, a king is born in your land, can we worship him? And King Herod uh, thought, I'm going to kill uh, this child. But they outwitted him, uh, and what did God do? He sent Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus away to Egypt for a few years in there, and what did the King Herod do? He killed all the, the children of that age, the baby boys. He tried, Satan tried to stop Jesus coming, but he couldn't. God outsmarted him. So back to the three signs that Jesus is revealing to the apostle John here. The pregnant woman, Israel, the dragon, Satan, and now the third, the third sign. Ready, ready, ready? Here it is. Look at Revelation 15, the second half of verse 1. John describes this. Seven angels with the seven last plagues, for with them God's wrath will be completed. Look at the end of it first. What's going to happen? God's wrath is going to be completed. But I want you to see seven angels with seven plagues. These are God's angels. These are not fallen angels. Um, I want you to see this. The third sign is God's wrath is about to set up the very end. It's coming down to the wire. That's what we're looking at. And just a quick side note, we'll look at this more in depth next week, so you can't miss next week. I, 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 I hope um, this is the stuff that gives me goosebumps. I hope that, uh, that you'll join me next week. So remember, Revelation has seven seals that are broken. You remember this? Seven seals that are broken uh, on this, and the seals are judgments on the earth. The seventh seal revealed seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpets reveals, the seventh trumpet reveals the seven uh, wraths of God, the, uh, the bowls of judgment on this. So here's what I want you to see. Seven seals, we've seen seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath, another instance of seven, 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 the, the number of God. It's just a cool thing. But this is big. Seventh seal, seventh seal, 
gives the seven trumpets, seventh trumpet, the last trumpet, gives these seven bowls. But now, just before the seven bowls of judgment are revealed, it switches to the rest of the third side. John sees the throne room of God again, and this is where I want to spend the rest of our time today. This is a picture in heaven, and it's awe-inspiring worship. I love it when we get to study the throne room of God. We don't have time to go all the way here, but let me... uh, But when the Bible describes something as awe-inspiring, it means so much more than just going, hey, that's pretty neat. It it is, I don't know how to say it, except awe-inspiring. You can't breathe. You can't stand. Many times you just have to lay face down. This is what we're talking about. The picture takes place just after the death of all the Christians on the earth, the wheat harvest, you remember from last week. Look what John describes in chapter 15, verse 2. John says, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, words fail John here. Why? Because it's so awesome. He's using the words he has, but he can't say exactly what it is. What does he say? He says, I saw something like. In other words, it's not exact, but this is as best I can explain it. What a picture, what a sign of this third sign here. We said this before, but look at the description of heaven. This is the throne room of God. I want you to see what is he describing? What can we glean from this? is I saw something like a sea of glass. means we know it's flat. We know it's flat. And we know in just a couple of verses, people are standing on this, so it's at least hard enough for people to stand on. But it's mixed with something like glass with fire. Now, I want you to see something. I don't know if this will help you live your life better, but just shows the awesomeness, the creativity of God. Um, It is this picture of fire mixed. And theologians have come up with this idea that it's not just a static floor. In other words, the floor remains the same, but the the movement underneath it, uh, pictures of fire like clear glass, but then maybe red underneath that, maybe even green or blue moving around this, that the point is just like fire is moving, that flickering, this floor is doing the same. Now, the floor seems to be smooth, and yet uh, with this word sea, the S-E-A, it's like it's moving at the same time. just blows our mind. But look at verse 2, the second half. And those who had won the victory over the beast, this is important, hang on to this, its image and the number of its name. So these are the people that won the victory over the beast. We've been studying the beast, the Antichrist. The image and the number of its name were standing on the sea of glass with harps of gold. Do you have the picture? They're standing on the sea of glass here. Now who is this? These are those who have come out of the tribulation. That seven-year time frame that this is coming out of on the earth. Tremendous evil. um, Or the last three and a half years of that same time called the Great Tribulation. Write this down. Those who are faithful throughout the Great Tribulation stand before the throne of God in a special session of worship. Oh, believe me, this thing is beautiful. Any Star Wars fans in here? Go ahead and raise your hand. Any Star Wars fans? Yeah, I, I, when I say Star Wars, I mean the original, the 1977 one. 
do you remember the, uh, yeah, I think it's the best uh, myself as well, but do you remember the last scene uh, when you got uh, Han Solo, uh, Luke Skywalker, and Chewbacca? Do you remember that? Uh, and they're walking down and they're getting this medal for destroying what? What, what did they destroy? Just say it out loud. Um, the Death Star. You guys are great theologians. Uh, and they're standing in front of this vast military parade, uh, you know, this auditorium, and uh, Princess Leah or Leia uh, puts the uh, medal around their neck. You remember that? This is kind of the picture I want you to see here. Uh, these people have been delivered. Uh, they are home. They are the ones that God has used to defend feet uh, the enemy. In other words, they persevered through this seven years of horrible evil, horrible persecution, uh, seven years of tribulation. Now remember, if there is a rapture, and I personally believe that there is, uh, a total disappearance of all Christians just before the tribulation, in the blink of an eye, uh, these are the Christians that have become Christian during the tribulation. Make sense? The greatest number of souls saved in the history is what we're looking at. I want you to see this. You heard me right. These people came to know Christ during the tribulation because of, you remember the two witnesses early on and then the 144,000 Jewish men that would become kind of super evangelists that would come to know Jesus and spread out all over the world sharing the gospel, both Jews and Gentiles coming to know uh, Christ in the millions and possibly billions out there. Uh, God supernaturally protects those 144,000, but Satan through the Antichrist, the false prophet, they've killed millions of believers and possibly billions of believers at the same time. These difficult times. And now, uh, if you think about in the tribulation, the Antichrist even blames all the difficult things that are going on with uh, the world on Christians. So people are killing Christians. And you think, hey, that's not possible. Well, let me just remind you of World War II when... Hitler and the Third Reich uh, murdered systematically by gas and, and gunfire and, and all sorts of uh, horrible things. He killed six million Jewish uh, people, Hebrews. Are you, you might think, well, the largest revival ever? I mean, what about all the people now? The largest harvest of souls? And yes, how could that be possible if all the other Christians are in heaven? Well, we don't know for sure how many people have died. Let me say it this way. Um, in the past, and not just at this point, from this point uh, uh, past, we don't know how many people have died. But here's what we do know is October 2012, uh, social scientists tell us uh, that the Earth's population went over 7 billion. That Yes, that's with a B, 7 billion individuals, and we're quickly approaching 8 billion. The point is, there might be billions of people standing here in the vision, uh, including this 144,000 uh, and. I want you to see that 
there are more, this is hotly debated, but uh, there are more people alive right now than all of the people who have died in history. Do you, do you understand? I'm talking about now. So uh, if we just go in, uh, into the future and the population keeps mushrooming, uh, this is huge. Now, I'm assuming uh, something here uh, that we're all there as well. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but I want you to see this. These people are special that lived through the tribulation. They are given harps to play as in zing, zing, that, right, that. And look, they're given these harps, and I'm assuming also the ability to play the harps. Now, harps in the Old Testament are instruments that are used uh, in worship. They are loud, but don't think of like modern harps. Think of more like a combination of a uh, guitar and a harp put together, handheld. And this may not mean everyone gets the same harp. The harp may mean that everyone gets an instrument to play. It may be this massive orchestra there, but music in worship plays a huge part even in uh, even in heaven especially in heaven uh, and this is uh, celebrating God's victory over the enemy by the way uh, there's some churches let me just say this there's some churches that uh, that don't have any instruments in their service and they love Jesus but they have this kind of uh, they treat it as a closed-handed issue which is amazing to me but they say well there are uh, there's no instruments in our worship time. You say, well, why is that? And they say, well, because there are no instruments listed uh, in the New Testament where Christians are playing. And I would go, I think you missed this verse. I'm just saying uh, because this is clear here. Uh, let me answer the question, what if the rapture doesn't happen before the tribulation, what if I'm wrong there? What if I'm wrong? What if the rapture happens midway through the tribulation or even uh, there is no rapture, simply Christ returns with the people uh, that have been resurrected from the grave? What happens there? Uh, let me just say this, uh, and I want you to hear this carefully. That's an open-handed issue. The closed-handed issue that everybody agrees on, all Christians, uh, whether you're pre um, pre-tribulation or mid or uh, you, you don't like the uh, rapture at all. We all agree on this. Christ is returning in the flesh as a conquering king to earth. That's what everyone agrees on. So what if the rapture doesn't happen? And this is my answer. God is still good and we can worship him. He'll give us the ability to go as long into the tribulation as he calls us to go. Um, and I know that I'm right with Jesus. And, and my question is, are you? So look back at verse 3. Uh, what does this massive session of worship look like? Here it is. They sang the songs of God's servant, Moses and the song of the Lamb. Hang with me on this. This is powerful. Underline in your Bible the song of God's servant, Moses, and the song of the Lamb. This is hugely important. Uh, before we go any further, what is this talking about? Why is it called the Song of Moses? Exodus uh, is the story about the Israelites, the Hebrew people, in bondage under this uh, dictatorial 
king, this horrible king that has them enslaved in Egypt. And the story of Exodus is how they exit the country under the leadership of Moses by the power of God. You remember? And and we won't tell the whole story, but you remember when they first leave, uh, they've got this uh, uh, two million people by the Red Sea. They're kind of camped out, uh, uh, men, women, children. and, And so they're right at the edge of the sea, and they're going, God, what do we do? And And then suddenly they see uh, the Egyptian army rushing towards them with chariots and horses. They're moving quick. They can see the dust in the distance. And they say, God, what do we do? So Moses prays. God says, take your staff, hold it out over the water, and I will deliver you. And so Moses does that. He holds it out over the sea. What happens? The sea parts And the Israelites walk through, two million plus people, walk through on dry ground, the Bible says. But then the Egyptians are still chasing them. The Israelites are all safe on the other side, but the sea is still there, so what do they do? The the Egyptians start to come. They're still pursuing. They're going, we're going to get you. We're going to go through the, the water just like you did. But what does God do? He answers Moses' prayer and covers the Egyptian army, drowning the horses and riders. The Jews uh, are protected. This, this is the song of Moses that they sing on the other side. They, they say, thank you, God, for delivering us from bondage, from the enemy, right? That's the song of Moses. They sing in Exodus 14. But what about the lamb? Why sing about the lamb? Look back with me at Revelation 5. The heavenly hosts sing this in Revelation 5. This is the throne room of God. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Do you remember this? All the heavenly hosts, and by the way, I believe this is you and me. We're there, we're singing to a lamb that was slain. Look at this. Because you were slaughtered and you were And you purchase people for God by your blood. What is it talking about? Jesus' death on the cross for every tribe and language and people and nation. That's just part of the song of the Lamb. The point is this. They they are remembering what God did to deliver uh, them from bondage of sin. Just like Moses, the song of Moses, they remember God delivered them from they uh, delivered them from Egyptian bondage. But the real delivery was that through the son Jesus, we were delivered from the bondage of sin, the slavery to sin. Do you see how those things to go together? And all those sin and death pursued us Look, the whole revelation, this part of the revelation is like uh, the water covering the Egyptian army, God's wrath destroying those who would pursue us. And although uh, I want you to see this one more cool thing, the Jews, when they went through the water, uh, they were delivered right through the water. Same way with Christians, when we... Uh, realize Jesus is the Son of God. We are saved. We repent of our sins. We are baptized. We are dunked. The old version of us is dead. The, The new version of us is raised up. We are delivered through the water, through the sea, just like the Israelites. Isn't that cool? Now back to Revelation 15, verse 3. Second half. Great and awe-inspiring are your works. This is the song, right? Great and awe-inspiring are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Lord, who will not fear and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. 
all the nations will come and worship before you because you, because your righteous acts have been revealed. In other words, we are worshiping you because who you are and what you've done for us. This is described, the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Do you get it? Do you get it? You will see this group worshiping. Either you will be a part of this group or you will be a part of the Christians who are part of the rapture who are there as well. And you, will, you might join in on this song. I dare say we probably will. What a picture of worship. God has delivered them, has delivered us from bondage of sin, and we uh, have seen the enemy crushed that wanted to take us away from God. Write this down. The song is about retribution and justice that God takes against his enemies in revealing the greatness of his works, his ways, his worth, and his worship. Oh, please grab this. This week, if anything, is about this. is examining who God is and worshiping Him because of who He is and what He has done. That is what worship is all about. Proclaiming that. It's hard to fathom this worship service, isn't it? With our little minds. Not too many of us have seen war firsthand. Many, uh, there are a few people that have seen combat and Iraq and Afghanistan, some other places. I know some of our Greeley uh, churches have been in war-torn areas, and I can't imagine what you've seen. To live through such a terrible thing as these people have, these seven years of tribulation, and to be tortured, to be persecuted because they love Jesus. But this is the strange, but is it strange to worship God to get ready to deliver the final judgment. You bet it is strange for us, but it is so appropriate here. God destroys evil. He brings judgment, and that's what we want. Not because we're good, but because He is good. The Apostle Paul says this about the judgment of God. He says in Romans eleven thirty three. he says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. Next week, seven angels walk out of the throne room of God and pour out seven bowls of wrath on the earth, the people that are left. The end is the beginning. I can't wait for this. Let me just ask a question. Why did you come? Why did you come today? I mean to church. Like, why did you come? You said, well, my parents made me come, or my spouse really wanted to be here. Don't answer yet. Don't answer yet. But I want you to ask that question of yourself. Why did I come? But hold that question in your mind. Because here's what we know. Worship is a choice we make. Worship is a choice we make. And yet, few people really uh, think of it that way. They think of it as something that just happens. Each week, well, uh, whenever you worship, uh, Christians make a choice either to make church about themselves or to make it about God. You with me? Here's what I mean. Most Christians look at worship in church in one of three ways. Look at this with me. The first way is they might think, I'm going to go to church and I hope I get something out of it. It's not a bad idea. 
That's not bad to hope for something good out of it, right? And, and you could mean that you want to get something out of the singing, like a, a, a warm feeling, a, a sensation of God's love. Uh, maybe you want something out of the relationships, the, your friends there, uh, the children's ministry. Maybe you want to get something out of that or, or maybe uh, the preaching. We hope you get something out of the preaching. And even serving, maybe a, a good feeling, like a completeness, like I, I'm serving. Uh, those aren't bad things. We could wrap all those things I just said into one thing, and we could call it worship, because worship is far more than just singing, although that's a critical part of it. So the first group of people go to church with that hope of getting something out of it. You, you with me? That first group, that first group uh, picks a church based on what they can get out of it. Do the kids like it? Do I like the music? Is the volume just right? Is the, the pastor uh, really delivering something that I can get? You get the idea. And, and, they, they, uh, and if they don't get what they want, they go to another church. Uh, we've called those steeple chasers uh, this first group. The second group of people go to church because they have the duty or the habit of this. Uh, they read the Bible. It says go every week. And you go, the Bible says that? And you go, yeah, uh, take a look. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 13 says don't miss the weekly gathering, the weekly worship of the believers, the Christians. So go, these, these guys go out of a sense of duty. Uh, like they go, well, it would be a sin if I didn't go. It's a habit, so I go. Um, maybe I've always gone. By the way, these, this one is sad to me. Me, uh, but I've seen it firsthand, a ton of people that worship this way, uh, this way out of a sense of duty. Now, this group typically doesn't pick a church based like the first if they like it. They, they typically either grew up there or started the church or, uh, you know, their grandmother was there, so they've just always gone to this church. Their satisfaction is in going to church that they kept the rule. They kept the rule. They were at church. They gutted it out, even, even check this out, when they hated it. I've noticed that not many of these, uh, these guys that go to church this way, just personally I've seen not many of them are Christians. They just go. It's kind of a tradition to them. Now, to be fair, most of the time, the choice we make is a default choice. In other words, it just kind of happens, meaning it's an unconscious choice. You don't decide. People don't necessarily choose to come uh, with the default uh, of making church about them. They just do. That's the default mode. And both of these first two choices is a church being mostly about the person. Do you see that? And what they get out of it. And not much about God, who He is, what He's done. Make sense? Make sense? Now, here's where we tie in what we've just studied in Revelation 15. Uh, and, and I want you to see this, is how we as a group, the ecclesia or ecclesia, the say it the fancy way, the body of Christ, the church, worships. Here is an aha moment that true believers get when they mature in their faith. Do you get this? Church isn't about me. It's about God. Worship isn't about me and what I get. It's about God and His greatness. You with me on this? Here's what that means. When Christians make the entire idea of church about what they bring to God in worship, or what they sacrifice to Him instead of what they get out of it, it unlocks something so deep in a believer uh, that says, we are going to glorify God with all that we are, all that we have. We're going to love God with all our hearts. We're going to lay aside our wants, 
our differences. We're going to lay aside our busyness. We're going to lay aside our calendar conflicts, all of our stuff, and make today, make worship about God, and we're going to do it together as a group, not just me by myself. We're going to, to get together in one room and worship God together as a church. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're going to raise our voice and sing even if we don't have the greatest voice. We're going to sing loud. We're going to give our tithes, our offerings, even though things may be tight. We're going to come every week, even though there's tons of laundry to do at home or things to do around the house or we're just so busy or even if you know we're just so tired from the week, we just need a week to lay around. We're going to put that aside and say, God, you are more important than all of my stuff. We're going to serve people in the church by working on a team. We're going to be uh, kind and engage people in the church. Check this out. Check this out. Even if they're not like us. When we make the choice to worship God and make it about God and doing what sacrificing what we want and offering to God uh, what he wants, a strange thing begins to occur God shows up. What I mean is that you do experience God. Maybe it's an emotional high. Sometimes it's not. But what happens is that God begins to reveal his true identity to his body. We start to learn who God is in those songs, in that scripture, in that serving others. And that, that, my brothers and sisters, begins to change our hearts. Do you see how worship works now? It begins to change our hearts from the old way of thinking. It gives us a new mind. And remember, the most important thing we can know is who God is and what He is all about. We begin to understand who we are, our real identity. God, through obeying Jesus' commands to love our neighbor as ourselves, to worship in the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to build in us who we were designed to be originally by God. What does it look like in practice? What does it look like in practice? This third group of people go to church. They see every aspect of Sunday, even getting ready for Sunday, rehearsing for the band, prepping. If you're on a team, you're a Sunday school teacher. All of those aspects is a chance to worship God for who He is and what He's done. They have prayed for this day. They sing loud. They clap. They raise their hand. They pray. They serve in some sort of way in the body. They don't just go, hey, what can you give me? They go, what can I offer God? Do you see the difference? They take notes. They dive deep in what to the preacher is saying. And in other words, they offer their undivided attention all day at church. They go, God, our attention, our bodies are yours. And all of that, all of that without the thought of if I feel like it or not. Jesus said this in John 4, 23. He said, but an hour is coming. And is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. True worship is a choice we make. So let me ask again, why did you come today? Was it to worship? I think, I think I know. You and me, we are longing for this day. 
when we get to worship together around the throne. And today, in our worship time, can be just a little bit of that. Would you worship with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the chance to worship you together as a body. God, for those people that came to, to worship, they have sung, they've lifted their hands, they have, uh, they have served today, they've studied their uh, Bibles, they prayed for this day. God, thank you for them. Thank you for those true worshipers. God, I pray that you take the rest of us right now and you make us your worshipers that you begin to change our hearts, that you engage us, that you help us to become, ev uh, to become every week that kind of worshiper that seeks to, to serve you and give you uh, all that you deserve. And God, in turn, I pray that through your Holy Spirit, you take and fill these people up with all your Spirit wants to do them. Complete in us, this church, this day, in both Greeley and in Loveland, your church. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.